Hi everyone, it's Carter. With Thanksgiving just a week away, it's the perfect time to tell you, our listeners, just how thankful we are for your loyalty and support. Because without you, none of this would be possible. I'd also like to take this opportunity to let you know we'll be taking a break next week. But don't worry, we still have something very special lined up for you. Stay tuned. In the meantime, from all of us here at ParCast, thank you again for listening and have a happy Thanksgiving. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. As the sun set over New York City on the night of April 10, 1836, dozens of people gathered outside of the old city jail. They carried lanterns and warm winter coats, ready to camp out all night if needed. A few members screamed into the night air, hoping their voices would reach one of the cells. Richard! Let us know you're alive up there, Richard! We know you did nothing wrong! They were waiting to hear from Richard Robinson, a 19-year-old who had been arrested for the murder of 23-year-old sex worker Helen Jewett. Helen's body had been found early that morning. Richard was the last person she had been seen with, and now he was the prime suspect. But these people weren't convinced. News of the brutal murder had spread through the city by word of mouth, and many people didn't believe that a mild-mannered, well-bred man like Richard could be capable of such a crime. They called up to Richard, hoping to get his attention. A small, pale hand stuck out of one of the barred windows. A scrap of parchment paper dropped to the ground. The crowd stood, transfixed as the note fell, darting left and right on the early spring breeze. Finally, one man caught it. He ripped it open to reveal two words. Not guilty. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our final episode on the murder of Helen Jewett. Last week, we covered Helen's upbringing and how her life changed when she met Richard Robinson. This week, we'll cover the investigation into her death and why her likely killer was never convicted. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. This episode is brought to you by Been Verified. 
Help chip away at the uncertainty that comes with online dating and use binverified.com, a leading platform for online background searches and people search reports. With their powerful search tools and extensive database, you could easily gather information about potential dates, which may help you find peace of mind before taking that next step. You can never be too safe when it comes to dating. Get 20% off today to help take control of your dating game. Visit binverified.com slash podcast. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. In 1836, 23-year-old Helen Jewett was an ambitious young woman who had climbed to the top of New York City's sex trade. She was one of the most coveted sex workers in the city, servicing lawyers, doctors, and businessmen from her room in a lower Manhattan brothel. Helen's fame took on a darker tone on the morning of April 10th. Rosina Townsend, the owner and manager of Helen's brothel, found that someone had lit Helen's bed on fire and Helen's body was still lying on top of it, hacked to death by an axe. Rosina quickly alerted the authorities, and as detectives descended on the crime scene, a crowd of curious pedestrians followed. And then, early this morning, I was woken up by a knock at the door. That wasn't unusual. People are coming and going at all times of night. As I let the visitor in, I started to notice some things amiss in the house. So I went upstairs to see if everything was all right with Helen. Were her clothes burned off too? Wouldn't that be a sight? So you saw her last? I wasn't the last person to see her, no. Uh, The last time I saw Helen, alive that is, was around 11 last night when I brought champagne upstairs for her and her companion. He wasn't your usual Saturday night customer, but I'd seen them together a few times. He went by the name Frank Rivers. Most Saturdays, Helen was visited by a man named George Marston, who used the nickname Bill Easy in the brothel. But the night of her death, Helen told Rosina she was expecting someone else, a young man who went by the name Frank Rivers. Rosina knew that was the code name for Richard Robinson. Richard had met Helen less than a year before in the summer of 1835. Though they started as a sex worker and client, the pair quickly developed more serious feelings for each other. Their on-again, off-again romance lasted ten months, punctuated by multiple fights, breakups, and reconciliations. Richard tried to put an end to their tumultuous relationship in March of 1836, But Helen had insisted that he come see her one last time, on Richard's 19th birthday. It was the last night Helen spent alive. After Rosina found the fire blazing in Helen's room, her first thought was that Richard Robinson was the murderer and that he had likely escaped through the backyard. When the police swept the house for evidence, they found a hatchet in the rear yard. It looked like it had been dropped there when the killer jumped over a fence. A watchman checked the other side of the fence and found a long cloak lying on the ground. According to Rosina, Richard had been wearing a cloak when he entered the brothel. 
just a few hours into their investigation. The police were fairly convinced that Richard was the man to catch, but they were puzzled by another piece of evidence, a handkerchief with a man's initials sewn onto it. It had been stuffed under one of Helen's pillows when she died in her bed and bore the initials G.M. These likely stood for George Marston, the man who usually visited Helen on Saturday nights. But that wasn't exactly proof that Marston was the killer. All signs still pointed towards Richard. And so, as the sun rose and the crowd continued to grow outside the house on Thomas Street, the two officers in charge of the investigation decided to leave the crime scene and find their suspect. Richard lived in a boarding house about half a mile from the brothel, and he shared a bedroom with another clerk named James Two. Police arrived at the house around seven in the morning and were led to Richard and James's room by a young servant. Hello? We're sleeping. To hell with sleeping. Open it up. What do you want? Are you Richard Robinson? No, he's right there. Shake him awake then. We're police. <gasps> Morning, Mr. Robinson. You're coming with us to the police station. I don't understand. I haven't done anything. We'll see about that. Get your trousers on, kid. The officer noticed that Richard seemed unnaturally calm, even when they told him that Helen Jewett was dead. And when they finally told him he was being arrested for her murder, Richard denied the charge. One officer later testified Richard only showed emotion once that morning. The color drained from his face when the police carriage turned towards the brothel on Thomas Street. In 19th century criminal investigations, it was customary to take a murder suspect back to the scene of the crime and force them to look at the body. Richard was ushered through the crowd and into the parlor. The room was filled with key witnesses along with the city coroner and two owners of neighboring brothels. Again, Richard didn't show any concern about being a murder suspect. While waiting to see the grisly crime scene, he chatted with the witnesses and wholeheartedly denied his involvement. So you're the one who did it? According to the officers, I am. I can't believe everything they tell you, though. If you don't mind me asking, what would induce you to do something so cruel? Splitting the poor girl's head open, burning her to a crisp. I, I, I am innocent. You would have to be utterly stupid to think me otherwise. I, I am a young man, only 19 years of age yesterday, and I have brilliant prospects. Do you really think I would ruin those by doing something so ridiculous? Mm, that's a fair point. And besides, they found a handkerchief with another man's name on it under poor Helen's pillow. How could I be afraid of being convicted with evidence like that? No talking to the suspect, ma'am. The officers studied Richard as he faced Helen's body. He hardly reacted when the sheet was pulled off of her, revealing a charred, bloody mess on the crumbling bed. Instead, Richard continued to insist that he was innocent saying that he had been in his room at the boarding house after 11 p.m. the night before. Luckily, James had followed his friend to the crime scene and was waiting outside the house. The officers pulled him inside to confirm Richard's story. All right, I'll admit it. We both visited the brothel last night. But I finished with my woman about 10.30, went home, and was asleep by 11.15. Richard came in soon after. Yeah, and how do you know that? 
woke up at about an hour past midnight. Richard was still awake, said he'd come in at half past eleven. And you believed him? You didn't check your watch? <laughs> I spent too much time at the whorehouse to afford one of those. There wasn't a clock on the wall? <laughs> too dark to see it. Very well. What about this? Does this cloak look like something you've seen in Mr. Robinson's closet? Well, yes. I mean, I haven't seen that particular cloak before, but Robinson does have one similar to it. It's a fairly common cloak. James, too, accidentally admitted that the cloak found near the fence looked like one of Richard's. This gave the investigators and coroner just enough information to cart the 19-year-old Richard off to Bridewell Prison in Lower Manhattan. By midday on Sunday, April 10th, the case seemed to be closed. Richard, the only suspect, was in prison, and the crowd of spectators outside the brothel was starting to thin. But as twilight approached, a man arrived who would turn this grisly crime story into the most talked-about news item of 1836. Up next, we'll talk about the explosive press coverage of Helen's murder. Hi, listeners. Here's a show I think you'll enjoy. When it comes to love, every story is unique. Some play out like fairy tales, seemingly meant to be. Others defy the odds to achieve happily ever after. In Our Love Story, the new Spotify original from ParCast, you'll discover the many pathways to love as told by the actual couples who found them. Every Tuesday, Our Love Story celebrates the ups, downs, and pivotal moments that turn complete strangers into perfect pairs. Each episode offers an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance, with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Whether it's a chance encounter, a former friendship, or even a former enemy, Our Love Story proves that love can begin and blossom in the most unexpected ways. Follow Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Ladies, your workouts are about to get an upgrade. The new Inspire leggings by Kalia are exactly what you want when it comes to activewear. It's their most versatile collection yet. They look good, feel good, and stay put. Using Lycra Adaptive Fiber, it compresses and molds to the body like a second skin. And it's unbelievably stretchy, so you can move however you want. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. And now, back to our story. The commotion around Helen Jewett's crime scene seemed to be dying down by the late afternoon on April 10, 1836. But first, guards allowed one last visitor inside. His name was James Gordon Bennett, and he was the 41-year-old editor of the New York Herald. The Herald was one of the most popular newspapers in New York City, and Bennett was a well-known figure. The paper had only been around for a year, but it had quickly gained popularity as one of the city's so-called penny papers. These newspapers were cheaper to buy than six-cent broadsheet newspapers like the New York Times and the Evening Post, and were mostly read by the working class. The broadsheet newspapers were written for businessmen and focused on national politics and economics. 
Penny papers were intended for a much wider audience and published local news, crime, and gossip stories. Most of their coverage had a whimsical, sarcastic tone, and they easily blurred the lines between fact and fiction. Bennett had already used high-profile crime stories to draw readers to his paper. When he heard about the brutal murder of a well-known sex worker, he knew he couldn't pass it up. So he took a private tour of the house with a plan to write about it in his Monday column. The editor wandered around the house, taking note of everything he saw. The piece he later wrote was called Visit to a Scene and offered the general public their first impression of Helen's murder. The parlor was elegantly furnished with mirrors, paintings, and every variety of costly furniture, and was decorated far more richly than one may expect for a house of ill repute. I ascended the stairs and entered the crime scene. What a sight! What was once an elegant mahogany bed, all covered with burnt pieces of linen, blankets, and pillows black as cinders. And the body! I could scarcely look at it, and yet it was the most remarkable sight I ever beheld. My God, I said. She is like a statue. The body looked as white, as full, as polished as the purest marble. The perfect figure, the fine face, the beautiful bust, all surpassing Venus herself. Bennett's article was gory and unnecessarily erotic, but it also gave readers a sense of Helen's personality and interests. He detailed the collection of books and literary journals on her shelves, the eloquent love letters on her desk, and the portrait of Lord Byron hanging over her bed. But it was the titillating details of the crime scene that caught the public's attention. In many ways, the murder was perfectly suited to the penny press. It involved sex, crime, and romance, all big selling points, and could be tied into the ongoing political debates around sex work in the city. It put a human face on sex workers and gave curious readers a window into the illicit world of high-class brothels. The murder of Helen Jewett was the first sex crime to get detailed coverage in the American press. And it was so popular that some historians cite it as the first example of tabloid journalism. Circulation of penny papers skyrocketed when they started to cover Helen's murder. And soon, the more established six-cent papers joined in. With so many publications now covering the case, each editor and reporter was forced to take a distinct position on who killed Helen Jewett and why. In the early days of the case, most of the press coverage said that Richard Robinson was innocent. It cannot possibly be Robinson. How could a man of only 19 years do something so brutal? I've seen this young man, and I doubt that he's man enough to grow a beard. His face is sweet and smooth, Hardly the look of a murderer. And when I examined the crime scene closely, I couldn't help but think to myself, does this not look like the work of a woman? Which do I believe to be more likely, that a respectable boy killed Miss Jewett, or that one of her neighboring women, wretched and friendless as they are, was responsible? It seemed that most people in the city were on Richard's side. At least most of the middle-class men who wrote for newspapers were. But this small group had an oversized influence on how the public thought about the suspect. Some young men in the city immediately hailed Richard as a hero and formed groups they called Robinsonian Juntos. These were gangs of upper-class young men who dressed like Richard and wandered around the city harassing sex workers in Richard's name. 
They all wore a purple dress coat, a black scarf, and a floppy hat, imitating the drawings of Richard they had seen in the newspaper. Richard's supporters sent anonymous threatening letters to Rosina Townsend, saying that she would be killed, just like Helen, if she testified against him. Rosina continued to talk to the press about what she saw the night of April 9th, but also hired a permanent security guard for the house. Though the evidence against Richard was strong, the so-called Robinsonians believed that he had a promising future and shouldn't be punished for what they saw as a youthful mistake. They believed that his reputation and future were worth more than Helen Jewett's life. Seeing all the controversy and drama that the murder had already created, newspaper men like James Gordon Bennett were eager to keep the story going. Before long, New York's penny papers were engaged in an arms race to find new information about Helen, Richard, and the days leading up to Helen's death. For his next column, Bennett attempted to write a definitive account of Helen's early life. But when he interviewed her friends and former clients, he couldn't get a clear picture. Some said that she was born to a wealthy family and forced into sex work by a teenage lover. Others said she had been poor all her life and chose sex work out of necessity. It became clear that Helen had made up multiple false backstories for herself, using them to get what she wanted from clients. Now that she was dead, these stories clashed into each other. Bennett and his readers were unsure of who Helen really was and if she was deserving of their sympathy. Was she the virginal daughter of an army major forced into a life of sin or a wicked seductress who got what she deserved? As Bennett continued to dig into the story, questions about Richard Robinson's background and character also started to emerge. As more information came out about him, he seemed less and less like an innocent boy and more like a remorseless, self-centered killer. Just five days after he had defended Richard's innocence in the newspaper, James Gordon Bennett got a hold of the 19-year-old's diary. Somehow, an enterprising reporter got access to it before it was entered into the police investigation. The reporter was shocked by the things Richard wrote and allowed multiple newspapers to print excerpts of the diary on April 15, 1836. Even Bennett, who had championed Richard's innocence, found it hard to defend him after the man's most private thoughts were revealed. I am fully aware that I am smarter than the average man, even at my young age. I carry an old head between these young shoulders, certainly. New acquaintances often seem to confuse my quick wit with something like honesty or innocence. I suppose I should let the world continue to see me as a blameless church-going boy. Then perhaps they won't notice my darker side. Richard's diary revealed him to be vulgar, self-centered, and manipulative. He detailed his sexual exploits with a cold, removed tone and seemed to delight in fooling people especially women, about his true nature. He had a dramatic streak, consistently claiming that he was smarter than everyone he met and that no one would ever be able to understand him. He also complained about making only $60 per year at his job. If he was making such low wages, he had to have had another source of income to be visiting sex workers so often. A few newspapers suspected that he was engaged in an illegal financial operation. 
it was getting harder and harder to portray Richard as someone who was too young and pure to be capable of crime. Even the pro-Robinson camp changed their tune. They began to say that even if Richard wasn't a particularly moral man, plenty of young men acted and spoke just like him. He might have been badly behaved or even malicious, but that didn't make him a murderer. Richard remained quiet when his diary was published. His last words to the public had been on the night of his arrest, when he proclaimed his innocence by dropping a note to the spectators outside Bridewell Prison. His lawyer advised him not to speak to anyone until his trial, which was scheduled for June of 1836. Interest in the case reached a fever pitch a few weeks before the trial. Enterprising printers started selling pamphlets that retold the story of the murder, including made-up quotes from both Helen and Richard. These pamphlets also included portraits of the pair, as well as sexualized drawings of Helen's corpse. Helen's real body was buried a few days after the murder in an Episcopalian graveyard. Her grave was unmarked, but robbers still found it. Helen's body was in the ground for only four days before papers claimed it was stolen by a group of medical students on April 16, 1836, and that her skeleton was on display in one of their classrooms. The runaway sales of newspapers, pamphlets, and drawings show that there was plenty of money to be made on the murder, and even Rosina wanted in on it. With her brothel business at a standstill, Rosina was desperate to tap into the zeitgeist, so, in late April 1836, she auctioned off the furniture from Helen's room. <clears throat> Our next item is Miss Jewett's bed. Of course, it was damaged by the fire, but I paid a fair price for it, so we'll start the bidding at $70. I'll pay $100. $100? Huh, I'll double that. $200! I'm afraid it isn't worth quite that much, sir. It's falling apart. <laughs> oh, we're not looking to sleep on it. 300. Uh, sold, I suppose. Perfect. Come on, boys, let's divide it up then. Who wants a splinter of the bed? Some relic of Miss Jewett's departed worth. Two dollars a piece. Who wants a souvenir? <laughs> After the April 20th sale turned into a macabre free for all, Rosina abandoned the brothel. All of the residents moved out and the Thomas Street house stood vacant. On at least two occasions, New Yorkers reported seeing a ghostly version of Helen staring out of one of the brothel's windows. Sometimes there was a hatchet floating behind her. Most people agreed that the spectral figure was a hoax. Still, pedestrians gathered outside the empty building every night, hoping to catch a glimpse of Helen's ghost. By May of 1836, it seemed like Helen Jewett's morbid celebrity was at its peak. But Richard was about to go to trial, and what happened in the courtroom was so unexpected and controversial that it pushed her stardom even higher. Up next, we'll talk about Richard Robinson's trial. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person, and I appreciate you, and I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now, back to the story. Richard Robinson's trial opened on June 2nd, 1836. About 6,000 people showed up in New York City Hall that morning. Many of them wore the purple coats and floppy hats that distinguished them as Robinsonians. They waited to rush into the courtroom and grab a seat for their hero's trial. The room only fit 1,000 of them. The rest of the crowd ended up spilling down a marble staircase through the building's lobby and out into the late spring rain. According to the newspapers, the vast majority of the spectators were male, and most of them were there to support Richard Robinson. There he is, our hero himself! Richard, good luck! We're all rooting for you out here! Mr. Robinson isn't speaking to anyone right now. Oh, come on. He can say a little something to us fine Robinsonians, can he? Richard, don't be so stone-faced. Give us a taste of what you'll do in there. I will insist upon my innocence. No more, no less. There he is! Knew I'd get him! Twelve jurors were chosen. All of them were white men, and most were in the middle or upper class. They came into the courtroom already biased toward Richard. They could easily sympathize with him and were more likely to give him the benefit of the doubt. The prosecution team knew that they were fighting an uphill battle. Before the jury could even think to convict Richard, they had to overcome their biases against sex workers and be convinced that Helen deserved justice. Once the jury was seated and the rowdy audience settled down, the lead prosecutor brought Rosina, the former brothel owner, to the stand. She confidently related what she saw the night of the murder. She had seen Richard with Helen just a few hours beforehand and was sure that no one else had exited or entered the house in the meantime. Richard's legal team tried to find inconsistencies in Rosina's story, pressing her for so many details that her testimony took nearly five hours to complete. Despite the defense team's attempts to discredit and confuse Rosina, the madam stuck to her story. As other witnesses for the prosecution paraded through the courtroom, the jury seemed to be leaning toward a guilty verdict for Richard. The prosecutors methodically presented all of the evidence that linked Richard to the crime scene. First, they mentioned the hatchet found in the backyard and brought in a doctor who matched it up with Helen's head wounds. Then, a watchman described finding a cloak near the scene of the crime, and the attorneys pointed out a distinctive tassel near the collar. Another sex worker testified that she had seen Richard in that cloak multiple times, and that the tassel had fallen off while they were on a sleigh ride together that winter. Upon closer inspection, the tassel on the cloak found in the backyard did appear to be re-sewn. 
The repair might have been done by Helen herself, who occasionally mended and embroidered her favorite client's clothes as a sign of affection. The attorneys also countered Richard's idea that the handkerchief found in Helen's bed would prove his innocence. They brought George Marston, one of Helen's most consistent customers, to the stand. George's initials were sewn into the handkerchief found under Helen's pillow, casting some suspicion on him. But the police stopped viewing him as a suspect when he explained that he had given the handkerchief to Helen, along with other items to sew and wash. He was nowhere near the brothel on Saturday night, and the placement of the handkerchief seemed like a mere coincidence. It's possible that Richard deliberately planted the evidence in an attempt to frame George. But on the third day of the trial, just as evidence was mounting against Richard's legal team, they revealed a surprise witness. The defense called a 33-year-old grocer named Robert Furlong to the stand. Robert claimed to have seen Richard in his store on the night of the murder. Mr. Furlong, you say that Mr. Robinson entered your store about 9.30? Yes, sir. Came in around then, bought a bundle of cigars, and sat on one of my barrels in the corner reading the evening post until 10.15. And you're absolutely sure that you're not confusing Mr. Robinson with someone else? No, sir. Mr. Robinson was a regular customer of mine. I'd recognize him anywhere. When I noticed he hadn't been in in a few days, I checked the papers. And there he was, in every headline. Mr. Furlong, you realize that another witness, Miss Rosina Townsend, claims that the suspect was in her house between the hours of 9.30 and 10.15, correct? Are we to believe that there are two Richard Robinsons? I suppose it does come down to her word against mine. But whose words would you rather take? A young gentleman like me, or a woman with a reputation like Miss Townsend's? <laughs> I'm not sure if the old hag is even capable of reading a clock! Robert's testimony was extremely important for Richard Robinson. It could completely discredit Rosina's testimony, if it were true. Strangely, no one came forward to state that they had also seen Richard at the grocer's on the night of the murder and Richard hadn't mentioned buying cigars when the police asked him about his whereabouts on April 9th. In fact, some of Richard's acquaintances weren't even sure if he smoked cigars. The grocer's testimony did not seem reliable to most of the reporters covering the story. Some even said outright that the witness was lying in their coverage of the trial. But the jury wasn't so quick to dismiss Robert Furlong's story. Some of them cheered during his cross-examination, eager to take any information that contradicted Rosina. The jury also could have been generous toward Robert's testimony because of a personal connection. Two of the jurors were grocers, and three others were merchants who owned businesses within a few blocks of Robert Furlong's store. In a modern court, connections like these would likely be labeled a conflict of interest and lead to the jurors' dismissal, but these conflicts weren't seen as a problem in 1836. To make matters worse for the prosecution, many of their possible witnesses refused to testify. Most of Rosina's customers did not want their secret dealings with sex workers brought to public light. While sex work was not strictly illegal at the time, it was still socially taboo, and that taboo extended to the sex workers themselves. Those women who testified were generally disrespected and disregarded by both the rowdy spectators and members of the jury. 
That wasn't the prosecutor's only problem. The judge threw out key pieces of evidence, like the clearly abusive letters sent between Helen and Richard because he worried they weren't genuine. The letters would have helped the prosecution establish a motive for Richard by showing his threatening, manipulative behavior towards Helen. The final blow came after five days of heated testimony when Judge Ogden Edwards summed up the case and instructed the jury. Evening, gentlemen. Before I let you go off to debate the boy's innocence, I must remind you that in order to convict, you must be sure of Mr. Robinson's guilt beyond all reasonable doubt. I encourage you to think critically about the voices you have heard these last five days and consider weighing the character of these witnesses before coming to any decision. To be frank, it is my opinion that the prostitutes in this case are not credible and should not be listened to unless their testimony is corroborated by better sources. My court will not accept testimony that relies only on their words. Judge Edwards blatantly told the jury to disregard all of the evidence brought by Rosina Townsend and other sex workers because he saw them to be unreliable. And with that, he basically made the jury's decision for them. Richard Robinson was found not guilty. Richard walked out of City Hall as a free man. He was greeted by a crowd of thousands. He's out! Mr. Robinson, I'm from the New York Herald. Now that you're free, does your conscience trouble you at all? Not a bit. Of course, I didn't do it. Only an idiot would use a hatchet to cut up a girl. Besides, I'm more of a jackknife man. How do you feel about your newfound celebrity? Oh, I fear I don't deserve it. I've always known myself to be handsome and intriguing, but the attention overwhelms me. The public views you as a savage, though. The public is stupid. Last question. After this trial, what's next for you? I'm headed west to join the Desperados in Texas. The Alamo needs defending, or so I've been told. In July of 1836, Richard Robinson changed his name to Richard Parmalee and boarded a steamboat to Texas. During the trip, Richard joined in on conversations about the murder of Helen Jewett whenever it came up. Each time, he calmly defended Richard Robinson without revealing that he was Robinson. Richard rarely spoke about Helen once he settled in Nacogdoches, Texas, but he likely never forgot about her. According to local rumor, he kept a pamphlet about the murder on his parlor table until the day he died in 1855. Looking over everything, I think that Richard Robinson is the only real suspect in this case. He and Helen had been in a violent relationship for months. He may have seen murder as the easiest way out of their love affair. I agree. The circumstantial evidence against Richard is just too much to ignore. If he actually had a fair trial, he would have likely gone to jail. In any case, the murder of Helen Jewett first made headlines because of its gory details. But as the trial moved forward, it became less about Helen and Richard and more about their class, gender, and position in society. If Richard had been convicted, the story would be tragic but unremarkable. But as his treatment in court offered a stark reminder that some lives seemed to be worth more than others in the eyes of the law. While Helen Jewett was turned into a gruesome public spectacle, Richard Robinson used his class status and gender to literally get away with murder. 
Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Helen Jewett, amongst the many sources we used, we found Patricia Klein Cohen's book, The Murder of Helen Jewett, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Kylie Harrington, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseff. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Tiana Camacho, Joe Hernandez, Kai Jordan, and KG Tang. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Remember to follow the newest Spotify original from Parcast, Our Love Story. Every Tuesday, catch an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance, with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Listen to Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.